You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 10th of January 2022 on Monocle 24. Will Berlin break with tradition and send battle tanks to Ukraine? Republican hardliners wield their new power in the United States Congress. And the pandemic fallout continues for British journalism. I'm Georgina Godwin. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you live from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guests today, Terry Stiastany and Michael Binion, will discuss a few of the day's big stories, including French President Macron's controversial plan to raise the retirement age. And we'll hear from the comedian and World War II history fanatic, Al Murray. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. Let me introduce you to our panellists today. They are the political journalist and author Terry Stiastany and Michael Binion, foreign affairs specialist for The Times of London. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for coming in. I hope we sent you taxis, did we? Or how did you how did you get in here today? Uh, on a on a cube which was still fairly crowded. It's a it's a Tuesday. I know we're gonna be talking about people's work journeys, but people head, obviously heading home fairly fairly busy this afternoon. Michael. Yes, a tube. I would never take a taxi through central London, take you three times as long and cost five times as much. Absolutely. That's completely true. Do either of you drive, though, I wonder? Yes, yeah. I've got a hybrid car. Don't drive it in London very much, but certainly for, for long journeys. I mean, we were driving down to France over, over New Year's with it sort of literally laden to the top of the back window. Uh, so, yeah, still still driving. Did you take your gorgeous spaniel with you? Uh, no, not this time. We were going skiing, so we decided that that wouldn't be fair. Although Ooh. he does have a French passport, he likes to go to France. We thought the cold, <laughs> the snow, the, what there was left of it would not be very good on his paws. He does not a skiing <laughs> spaniel. Michael, what about you? Do you drive? I do drive, yes. I've got a car, uh, but it mostly just sits in the drive because if I go into London, I would never take it. I think I've only once ever paid the congestion charge because it just seems such a waste of waste of money. But running around, you know, outside London, it's pretty convenient. Mm, well, of course, the congestion charge, and then if you have an older car, there's all the the carbon oh, tax, yeah. the the ULES. I had the, a, a lovely old convertible Golf, uh, which would have cost me, I think, twenty eight pounds a day to drive <laughs> something like that. <laughs> and one of the big disadvantages, of course, of the car like that, it has the turning circle of a tank. I mean, I've just <laughs> put, got so many muscles in my forearms from just trying to turn and park this car. Anyway, let's talk about tanks because Ukraine needs them, real heavy duty tanks. And Kyiv is pressing Western allies for delivery. Well, the UK is ready to do so. France and Poland are pressurising Berlin to approve the export of Leopard 2 tanks. But because they're made in Germany, Berlin has a veto on any re-exports by partners. So let's just talk about this tank. It's a 60-tonne uh, Leopard 2. It's seen as one of the best battle tanks in the world. It's equipped with a 120-millimeter cannon, as well as state-of-the-art defence system and armour. A bit more than a Golf, I think you'd agree. It's already in use in much of Europe, and there's a plentiful supply, but German Chancellor Olaf Schulz needs to agree. Michael, how likely is Schulz to agree to this, and what's holding him back? 
Well, I think he is in the long run likely to agree because he's coming under increasing pressure, both from NATO allies who say, look, you can't keep promising things and then not giving them. You can't keep saying to Ukraine, we're 100% behind you and then not give them what they want. And at the same time, I think his coalition partners, uh, funnily enough, especially the Greens, who are quite, uh, you know, quite forceful on the need to rebuff uh, Russian uh, advances and to support Ukraine, may tell him that, you know, you can't keep hoping that we can keep some sort of dialogue open with Russia by not actually sending too much equipment to Ukraine. I mean, the time for that is past. If they're going to back Ukraine, give them what they need. But he's being very reticent about it. He's not coming forward, is he, Terry? No, he's not coming forward. I mean, most recently he said that uh, Germany won't go it alone. But, you know, as, as Michael's saying, you know, his, his coalition partners, the Greens, are, are being a bit more sort of encouraging and saying, well, look, we can't rule this out in the future. And although Germany said they're going to send these sort of fighting MARDA fighting vehicles, apparently the two things, you know, normally are supposed to go together. You know, the fighting vehicles are supposed to back up your tanks. But I think one of the questions here, sort of more strategically, is what uh, the rest of, you know, what the other countries supporting Ukraine are expecting Ukraine to do with the tanks. You know, it suggests to me that if, if you're wanting big battle tanks, you're wanting to fight a big battle, you're wanting to go and take back territory. And, you know, when uh, Macron offered um, President Zelensky the sort of the French fighting, ve- you know, armoured fighting vehicles, he said, well, look, thanks very much for that, but can I have the real stuff? Can I have the, can I have the proper tanks? And mm. so it's the question of what they're actually aiming to do with those. And if they do get the proper tanks, how much of a military game changer could that be for Ukraine? Well, I think it's very important if, as everyone says, the Russians are going to launch a new spring offensive any time now, really. Um, slightly depends on the weather. Uh, it's not clear who would have the advantage if it's really cold and the ground is hard, or who would get bogged down if it's really muddy, and as, as it has been. But there is obviously some kind of big military build-up, particularly along the front where there have been uh, tremendous battles, um, sort of the central part of Luhansk and where there's, there's sort of people dug in, almost like First World War trench warfare going on there. Uh, but they do need tanks to try to break through if they're going to do that or to stop any Russian breakthrough. Mm. Is there much agreement then in the rest of Europe, Terry? Well, I think, again, there's there's this question of people are gradually moving towards this. I mean, there have been suggestions from the British side that, you know, it's possible that Britain would send some Challenger 2 tanks to Ukraine. And obviously, if Britain is going ahead and doing that, and we've, you know, we've already heard of the, the smaller contributions from France and from the United States, then that pressure is, is starting to grow. And, you know, as we've already said, there are lots of countries that already have these Leopard 2 tanks and would be quite prepared, including like Poland, be quite prepared to resell those on or re-give give those on to Ukraine. But in order to do that, they need to get get Germany to agree to it first. And I wonder how, how Russia is able to, to, to face off to this. I mean, we saw what happened when they originally tried to invade uh, Kiev, that their whole column of tanks was just bogged down for days. Yes, yes. Well, I think the Russians are learning and have learned something about why their tactics were so dreadful to start off with. I mean, they were caught on the hop at the beginning. They had bad intelligence. They thought it would be a walkover, and it wasn't at all. Uh, I think they're beginning to adjust to new tactics. They've got a pretty brutal commander-in-chief who came from Syria, where he learned a thing or two about how to bomb people into submission. And uh, I think they will launch uh, a big wave of, um, well, just, I don't quite know, full frontal attack, um, because they are reinforcing their manpower with conscription. And uh, I hope 
for them trying to train people up uh, to some level of readiness. Otherwise, these uh, guys are just going to get killed in in large numbers. Mm. I mean, Terry, you mentioned that the French tanks are uh, sort of out of date now, really. But I wonder if the whole concept of tank warfare is, given that we have advanced so much in technology now, that the idea, the kind of visual of a tank on a battlefield, when in fact you can have somebody with riding a joystick thousands of miles away, does seem a, a little obsolete. Yes, I suppose it does. I mean, we, we're so used to seeing, you know, aerial warfare and drone warfare and other types of, you know, more precisely targeted uh, attacks. But, you know, as as Michael was saying, we remember, I mean, it's been almost a year now since since the Russian invasion. And we do remember seeing the Russian tanks, you know, going forwards, but getting stuck. So people obviously still think there is a place for that in, in terms of, you know, land fighting. And that's obviously something that the Ukrainians uh, would dearly like to have. You know, be, people have been quite forthcoming about letting them have, you know, the technology, the ammunition, you know, other kinds of other kinds of warfare. But they obviously think that if they're going to defend themselves or, or perhaps push back further, um, that that is something that they still need. So far, the, the EU and the US have been sending weapons to Ukraine in drips and drabs. But support for Kiev might dry up from Washington as the new speaker, Republican Kevin McCarthy, takes office. Well, in order to secure the title, he had to agree to many conditions which may affect the security of his own position as well as the federal debt ceiling. Uh, Oklahoma Republican Congressman Tom Cole spoke to the House shortly after representatives approved a new set of rules for the chamber. Here he is on some of them. We will restore the cut-go rule, which requires us to offset any increase in mandatory spending with a corresponding cut in mandatory spending. No more will the House be able to use budget gimmicks and tricks to pretend increases in mandatory spending are paid for when they actually are not. We will restore a requirement for three-fifths majority to approve any tax rate increase. If this rule had been in place, the House would not have passed the massive tax increases the Democrats included in last year's reconciliation bill. We will eliminate the so-called Gephardt rule which allows the House to automatically suspend the debt ceiling upon passage of a budget resolution. Just as the American people have to live within their means, so too should the federal government. And that uh, was Tom Cole, a Republican congressman. Well, the Democrats' Jim McGovern responded to Cole's comments. Here's some of what he had to say. What's become crystal clear over the past few days is the extent to which the Republican Party has been hijacked by an extremist MAGA faction, a faction not interested in governing, but in their own egos, a faction not interested in compromise, but in their own power, a faction not interested in putting people over politics, but instead interested in putting their own political ambition over the people we serve. Now here we are, nearly a week later, considering their deeply flawed rules package. The first legislation on the floor by this new majority, and they are using it to gut the Office of Congressional Ethics. Attack women's access to abortion. Make it easier for big oil companies to pollute and interfere in ongoing criminal investigations into President Trump. They're making it easier for billionaires uh, and big corporations to avoid paying their taxes. Well, has the House been hijacked by a small handful of election deniers, Terry? 
Uh, well, they've certainly made it difficult. Um, they certainly, you know, it took Kevin McCarthy, was it 15 votes to actually, you know, get his gavel, become the speaker, you know, impose some sort of rules. Um, but he seems to have had to give away so much in that process of actually getting a few people to to agree to his ambition to, to be the speaker that he's wanted for such a long time um, that it actually puts him in a, in a really weak position. Um, and, you know, there's opportunities there and there's dangers there. And one of the things that they are talking about doing now is just making it easier to try and remove the speaker as well. So, you know, he had a terrible trouble getting himself in there and he could see himself uh, opposed again quite quickly. Mm, so his own authority undermined somewhat. What about the authority of the House generally? Well, I think it's held more and more in contempt by a lot of American voters because they see it so preoccupied with their own kind of personal ambitions, as the Democratic speaker was just saying just now, and grandstanding, and particularly those who seem to think that every issue is an ideological issue and must be uh, resolved not for the good or the bad of uh, the issue itself, but on the basis of whether or not this conforms to some kind of right-wing ideology. Uh, That's particularly the minority that has enforced these new rules. So I think... uh, Basically, uh, it's a recipe for stalemate in the House. I mean, there's been long uh, a a tradition, well, an unfortunate tradition, of each party trying to block the other party when the president is of the opposite party. In other words, Republicans will try to block anything a Democrat president does, and the Democrats have tried to block things Republican presidents have done, which leads to a general stalemate in legislation. And that can't be good for anyone. The so-called checks and balances have become simply checks. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the concessions McCarthy's made are going to have a real impact on the business of governing. They are. I mean, I think, you know, we were hearing there what they were talking about was, you know, to do with funding the federal government, to do with running up government debt. And we we kind of know where this ends because we have seen this before with with previous uh, Republican speakers, Republican houses. You end up, often end up with the government shutting down completely because you just, you know, they say, well, well we're not going to fund the government doing anything. And so they have to have to say, well, OK, we're not, you know, we're not running federal services for a certain point in time. However, that has also previously brought about uh, the ends of the careers of, of Republican speakers. And, and the interesting thing will be to see who gets good at counting, who gets good at playing the different factions off each other, because they've only got a majority of 10 seats. Now, we've only seen today one Republican voting with the Democrats against these rules, and he got you know a fair amount of, of hostility for it, as you would expect. But if the Democrats in particular can start to pick off people from the other side, so not the sort of the ultra Trump sort of side that we saw trying to block McCarthy's appointment, but the other, you know, maybe there are still people to be picked off. Maybe you can start to get things through and maybe the party discipline breaks down on all sides, which, mm. you know, is possibly a way a way through this. I mean, Michael, how much uh, power do you think Donald Trump still personally holds? Well, less and less. Um, he still has a very firm grip over the imagination of particularly his core supporters, but they tend to be, you know, far from Washington. They're sort of the um, the working class poor in many areas who saw him as uh, somebody who would get things done, doesn't care about Washington, doesn't care about world opinion, things of that kind. And there's still still a bedrock of support for him there. But among those who are going to be critical in the selection of a new candidate uh, for the Republicans, I think more and more are looking to Ron DeSantis in Florida as the likely person. Fewer and fewer think that Trump will actually 
come to his senses and propose a program that makes sense to a lot of other Republicans because a lot of them feel that he's gone off into the deep end. Mm. And, of course, he may yet end up in prison. (laughs) Well, he could, yes. And, of course, that puts people off the idea that, you know, your candidate is actually going to be arrested before he can stand. Yeah. So, I mean, the the, the Republicans are deeply riven. What about the Democrats? How is this going to play for them? And do you think it will influence the next election? Um, Well, I think, obviously, if... uh they're seen to be doing things that that people find find difficult to get through. I mean, it's it's a question of what they can say that the government is trying to fund. You know, if they can point to policy areas and say, you know, the government wants to do this for you, the American people, and you know, the the Republican-led House is stopping it. Then again, it could possibly work quite well. And if Joe Biden is able to to get things through by you know the presidential uh, sort of fiat and and have th- have things passed then then it doesn't necessarily work all that badly for them I and mean, let's not forget they did so much better in the last midterm elections than most people had expected them to do um but you know once if it does come to a situation like uh, a shutdown of the government then people tend to blame all of the politicians regardless of party and i mean a shutdown of the government and and this this uh, blocking of, of of federal debt i mean that could be could have global consequences well it could but it's happened before quite a few times it's brinkmanship really and uh, they go to the point where suddenly you know for about a week or so people don't come into their offices and all sorts of federal institutions right across the country are shut down they just you know the office is closed you probably find it difficult to get your pension or something like that uh, and that annoys everybody but it doesn't usually spill over into a total catastrophe for the economic future of the United States because after about two or three weeks people sort of come to their senses and they they find some compromise of getting things going again. Uh, I don't think it's likely that we'll have a a total shutdown whereby uh, the economic future of the United States is imperiled. But it could happen, I suppose. Mm, And of course, we could see McCarthy going um, at any time. Yes. I mean, you know, if if it really would only take, if they get this rule through that says it only takes one single congressman or woman to call for his removal, then, you know, that could happen at any point. You know, it doesn't matter who it is. If there's somebody calling for his removal, um, then, you know, then the presumably, I'm not sure what the, the process is exactly for that, but that's going to hold up any kind of uh, progress in any in any legislation because he will have to be fighting for his own survival. Well, he wouldn't necessarily be removed. Though, he wouldn't be he removed, but the process of trying to challenge him yeah. presumably is something... Yeah, you start that, you again know, with a sort of yeah, challenge. Yeah. Mm. Well, one good aspect of the US Congress is diversity. There are younger members coming in, the first black leader of a party and many more women. But there are still a lot of very elderly people serving. Retirement doesn't appear to have occurred to many in the House, unlike in France, where the unions are up in arms as President Emmanuel Macron's plans to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64 in 2030 look like they're coming to fruition. Um, Terry, this was one of Macron's key election pledges in 2017. So why the outrage? They knew it was coming. They knew it was coming. Uh, Macron has tried to get it through before. He didn't manage to do it. He's trying to do it again uh, in his second term. And, you know, the unions are still opposed to it. But, you know, the thing for France, if you look at the rest of particularly the developed economic world, this is so out of line uh, with the way that things are going in, in the rest of the world. France's retirement age is still so much lower than, say, anywhere like Germany, the UK, even in Italy. Uh, 
Um, and so this is something that, you know, Macron is really trying to push on the French people and say, look, you've got to be realistic about this. But again, we're just talking about the difficulties of getting things through uh, the legislature. You know, after the legislative elections, Macron is going to have problems pushing this through. He's, you know, he's uh, lost a lot of um, power there. And Elizabeth Bourne, the prime minister, is trying to reassure people today that, you know, if you've had a career, you will still get a decent pension, that you have to contribute a certain amount of years before you get your pension. But that, you know, and trying to reassure people that this is not as, as drastic as, as the unions and some of the opposition are making out. Well, just picking up on that, that this new age, as you say, is only for those who've worked enough years to qualify. But this sidelines many women, for instance, who interrupted their careers to have children. Do you think that this should be an issue? Should there be a completely equal footing there? Well, of course there should be, yes. I think in all countries there should be an equal footing uh, for men and women in all benefits and pensions and entitlements of that kind. Whether or not that can be afforded straight away, I'm not sure. I mean, the whole question about this is really to do with cost, that France simply cannot afford to pay uh, generous pensions. And the pensions are pretty generous by any European standard. Uh, they can't afford to pay them you know, two or three years before any other country pays them. Uh, either you contribute much more in your working life and therefore the employers are also obliged to put in a lot more. And for many people, they don't want to pay that much. France already is a very highly taxed country. Or you say to people, look, you're living longer. Uh, you can easily afford to work two more years and it won't really hurt your entitlements. Uh, unions are dead against it. And the unions in France are very powerful. And of course, they have their own you know, interests. They, uh, they've done it before. They simply call a strike, uh, an indefinite strike, if they see their precious pensions uh, touched. Mm, absolutely. I mean, with an ageing population, as in most of Europe, do you think it's inevitable? I mean, do you think we'll see the retirement age being raised in other countries? I think I think it really is inevitable. I mean, looking at the figures on French life expectancy, so from between 1980 and now, the life expectancy for a woman has gone up from 78 and a half to 85 and a half. And for, for a man, it's gone up from 70 to, to 79. So that's a nine year increase in the life expectancy of, of the average French man. And France is not only the country where people like they leave the workforce earlier but they, they enter it later so people stay in education longer they don't start contributing and, and working till later on now Elizabeth Bourne was talking today about well you know if you started working before the age of 16 you'll still be able to retire at 58 you know most people now are obviously not starting working before 16 you're still in you're still in education at that point and so there's just a, a growing gap and there was a really striking statistic that struck me that for the moment at the moment they have you've got two active workers for, for for every two active workers there's one pensioner so it's sort of two to one ratio mm. down from four to one that's going to go down to one and a half to one so it's almost going to be equal the numbers of people working and the numbers of people taking their pensions so the, the maths of that just just doesn't add up i mean i don't have a pension i'm going to be working till i die but how <laughs> how old is too old to work i mean after all uh, joe biden's 80 Yes. Well, I officially retired 13 years ago. <laughs> and I'm still going in and working. And that's fine. I mean, it depends what you do. Uh, there is a mandatory retirement age for doctors, which I think is sensible, because although doctors have a great deal of wisdom, first of all, you need to keep up a lot in what the latest uh, suggestions are about treatment. And also, if you're a surgeon, you need to have the physical skills to be able to do things. But some other things, I mean, I have to say journalists, as long as you've got your brain in, intact and can put a few words together, there's no real necessity to, you know, stop at 65 at all. Mm. And of course, the older one gets, the more difficult it is to get out and about. But the pandemic changed all that. Uh, working from home has become the norm, particularly if you're a journalist, of course, you can do it from, from anywhere. But 
it. So much so that one London business paper, City AM, says they'll no longer be publishing a Friday print edition because of insufficient take-up and that the Thursday edition will now feature more lifestyle content to mark the beginning of the weekend. Well, I mean, do either of you go into an office regularly? I I know I, I don't. I I make, I make work largely from home. I come in yeah, come into nice radio studios like this one sometimes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and mostly mostly working from home for these. For these no, days. I go in every time. Every time they say, "Would you come and write an editorial?" I go in. Uh, first of all, I like the atmosphere in an office. I like to be able to see my friends and colleagues. I like to be able to exchange ideas. I like, as an old-fashioned journalist, to go out to the pub for lunch, <laughs> which is where your best thoughts come. Absolutely. Well, I mean, new data shows that the City of London remains incredibly busy between Tuesday and Thursday. That's led to a fantastic acronym. Yes, and I was told this by a friend who does work in the city, and apparently there are people who work Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays, and they are known as twats. <laughs> but are they actual twats for doing that? I mean, do you think that workers should do a full week? Well, you, you're not necessarily not working if you're not in the office. I mean, the City AM seem to be suggesting that, you know, Thursday, Thursday does seem to be the big going out night. This is what I was hearing from, you know, friends who actually go out and go to the office and do, do exciting things like that. Um, but, you know, it doesn't mean that you're not working. And I think actually it, a balance between going into the office and working from home, does it just makes life easier. It makes more more livable. It allows you to do bits of admin that you might not be able to do. It allows you to, you know, collect your parcels and, and feed your children and do other things like that and actually I think had I been able to mix working from home when I was still working in an office and going into the office it just would have made my life so much better and mm. the quality of life. I, I think mean, yes I think the thing with City AM though it is a commuter's paper mm. uh, and if you're going in the office you commute you get in you know well I suppose it's mostly a train commuters it's particularly a London thing where people commute by train if you're going by car really you know you're not going to pick it up on the way but if you're going in uh, as most people in London do go in by train or underground you see the paper and you pick it up. Uh, if you're not going to flow of people through uh, the stations, they won't see it and there's no point publishing it. Do you think that people are actually working on a Friday, albeit from home, or are they, like old school journalists, just going to the pub? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it depends what you do. Uh, yes, I mean, it depends what the pressure is. I mean, some people work not only Fridays, but also Saturdays and sometimes Sundays. And I think the danger about working from home is that there's no obvious boundary between work and non-work. Mm. And people then either work too much because they feel they ought to work more, or when they are working, they constantly get distracted and they, they sort of get up, wander about, make a coffee. Then they think they'll, oh, they'll just go out and, you know, get a bit of exercise and come back. Uh, there's no clear boundary. And that's why I personally don't really like that idea. Yeah. Think, but that happens in the office as well, doesn't it? I mean, there were plenty of days in the <laughs> office where you go, look, it's Friday afternoon. No one is really actually doing any work here. Some of the people have been to the pub at lunchtime. But there, one thing I have noticed is if you go to, say, a gym class or a yoga class in the week, I mean, my teacher was cracking jokes about, oh, right, so I see you've all got a meeting scheduled at the moment between 10 and 11.30. Nice to see that you're all here in your very important meeting that you've blocked out in the office calendar. So, you know. Well, speaking of the pub, Al Murray is someone who can tell us a thing or two about not just working from, but working in the pub. He's best known for his comedy, especially The Pub Landlord. That's his satire of an English publican with a penchant for the rock band Queen. Uh, but Al is also a history buff. 
Buff, and he hosts a podcast on the Second World War with the historian James Holland. Al's new book, Command, How the Allies Learned to Win the Second World War, is his first, he says, without jokes. Monocle's Andrew Muller, the regular host of this programme, caught up with Al earlier, and he asked him whether he felt self-conscious as a comedian attempting a work of serious history. Oh, good Lord, yes. Um, I mean, you know, uh, we, we, we live in the age where we're meant to stay in our lane, aren't we? Mm. And um, I, 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 don't, I don't like that idea. I like the idea of people having being doing more than one thing. I, I nearly said being good at one, more than one thing, but um, <laughs> let, let, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, I, I do like the idea of people having more than one sort of string to their bow. I do like the idea of, uh, of uh, history, also of history not necessarily belonging to historians. It belongs to, after all, it belongs to everybody. But I was terribly self-conscious doing this, and, and I found... The writing process even more agonising than usual. Whereas, <laughs> when you when you any book, the, the 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 fundamental problem for me with the book is when you sign off in it, it's gone. It's no longer mm. in, in your control anymore. Unlike a stand up set, which you can spend eighteen months never finishing. You know, you can tour it, tour it, and never finish the jokes quite, never finish the story quite. You're tuning it the entire time. Whereas this this turns into a sort of item in black and white that's been proofread, and that that I find to be. Total agony, and, the, and, and compounded by you know uh, uh, the assistant editor going, "This argument doesn't really hold up. Surely you mean this? <laughs> Do you not mean that?" Um, quote, where, "Where's this quote from?" and all that sort of stuff. So the the sort of the rigor of it, I found um, bracing. Let's put it that way. The book is a it's a series of potted profiles of of significant yeah. uh, generals of Allied generals of World War Two. Yeah. Why focus on the commanders? Obviously, there's any number of books about World War Two you could write, any number that have been written. What drew yeah. you to the generals? Well, I mean, the thing is, the, the Second World War is told in all sorts of different ways. Mm. And very often, there's a lot of scholarship at the moment, which is very interesting about how, in the end, it's material material strength that's the thing that win, win, wins you a conflict and, and how you mobilise that material, material strength. But in the end, you've got to mobilise the people, whether you've got the material strength or not, you've got the, the phantom, in the, the sort of ghost in the machine, the software in that sort of hardware version of how uh, wars are fought, uh, uh, are the people and how you mobilise them and how you get them to fight. And the buck in the British and Commonwealth armies and the American armies did stop with with the generals, with the commanders, the people doing that, who found themselves in the unenviable, unenviable situation of having to persuade people to risk their lives to take lives, and I and I've you know I've got some famous names in it. I've got some people in it that mm. um, readers, unless they're not casual readers, will never have heard of. And I think you know they're, they're the they're the sort of breadcrumbs that explains how the Allies go from being really bad at fighting and 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 uh, and I mean really really bad. And I often think the defeats inflicted on the Western side now would be politically would probably be intolerable to recover mm. from in, in our modern political context. Um, uh, although, of course, you know you, these sort of hypotheticals aren't particularly useful but i think the defeats inflicted on the british empire for instance in the first three and a half years of the war are on paper unrecoverable from you know the, the evacuation of dunkirk only four years later you know the, the british army is is steaming into into france and fighting this epic mm. um, armored battle having been completely caught out by even the idea of armored warfare four years earlier is amazing and can't just be explained by we've got bigger factories than theirs and we've got, you know, we've managed to, we've got more bauxite than they've got. 
It's, it's it's how have the people arrived at these conclusions. That's the interesting bit, I think. I mean, the menu profile are all in one way or another extraordinary, um, and, yeah. th- and that is a, a, a euphemism co- covering a, a multitude <laughs> of sins in a couple of cases. But but they right, are right. they are an extraordinarily diverse crew. Some are very unshowy. Some are yeah. massive prima donnas. Uh, yeah. Some are ruggedly orderly and intellectual. One or two, at least three parts mad. Or Wingate being the the, the yeah. obvious example of that. Yeah. So for all that diversity, did you end up thinking that there are particular hard and fast qualities a useful, successful leader has to have? Yeah, I mean, yes, absolutely. And it's unfortunately, and this is why I think why some of these characters are, you know, uh, 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 often borderline bonkers, <laughs> is self-confidence. Mm. It's the, the self-confidence required to take the sort of decisions that these people are having to make all, all the time. Um, decisions that will get your own people killed regardless of, of whether you win or lose. You know, I think, and that's the thing that, that really runs through it. And this, And interestingly, I think the sense of, Humility in the face of the responsibility they have is the mm. thing that really shines with sticks out with a lot of them. Even some of those who are regarded as uh, showy, actually, what's going on is that they're doing that quite self consciously. They're projecting that because they think that's the best way to sort of irradiate their men with confidence. So, you know, men like Montgomery, who, whose reputation, after all, part of the, I think the destruction of his reputation after the Second World War is a lot to do with how he behaved after mm. the war. I don't think how he behaved during the war. Is necessarily a part and parcel of that. And also, he became one of those people that represented a British society very much rejecting the terrible things they'd had to do during the Second World War, mm. in a way that Bomber Harris ends, ends up completely a pariah, because, you know, we'd had to stoop to their level to win, is, I think, the feeling. And, and I think Montgomery's real concern is for his men. He doesn't want... He's trying to get as few of his men killed as possible. And I, I, I find if that manifests itself in him being a bit of a prig and, and, and firing people who he didn't get along with, fine. I don't... I sort of... I, I find that hard to object to. And and then George Patton, after all, is trying to get the thing done quickly so his men could go home soon. Uh, uh, and and so his his approach is to be this sort of flamboyant warrior, but there's, there's, sound, there's a sound reason at the heart of it. Just finally, we, we've talked about this before, about one of your previous books, The Enduring yes. Fascination of World War II, and you and you yeah. have written before that, frankly, um, this country does probably wang on about it a bit too much for its own <laughs> or anybody else's good. Um, Quite true. <laughs> which, is, which is quite a position for you to hold, hosting a World War II podcast, as oh. you do. But as you wrote this book, did your thinking about the enduring fascination of World War II evolve at all? What, what is it you think we still look for when we go back to it is it some sort of doubtless misguided longing for you know, to be part of a grand cause is it the idea of a good war that reassures us i think i think those are both definitely a big 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 part of it but i think the thing that's really interesting at the moment is obviously there's this there's very much a drive and certainly in popular history to sort of recenter um mm. Britain, uh, Britain as an imperial power and all the baggage that comes with that um, in, in people's imagination. So we're rethinking we're rethinking our imperial legacy in the UK. But actually, if you you can't really explain how Britain wins the Second World War without it being an imperial power. It makes no sense. And so often the Second World War is kind of D-Day and Dunkirk. Well, Dunkirk and D-Day and that, that way round chronologically. And uh, and. That makes it sound like it's a world war, but it's all happening in northwest France. What's going on? That the sheer global context of it and Britain's centrality as a global superpower really 
has to be part of how we tell that story now. And that actually, weirdly, locks into this idea that we're supposed to reinvestigate our imperial legacy and and, uh, and who we are, who we were as an imperium. And I think, weirdly, that's another another a, a fresh reason to be interested in it that chimes with what's going on in, in popular sort of presentation of history. Al Murray there, speaking to Andrew Muller. And that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thank you to my panellists, Terry Stiastany and Michael Binion. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamunchuan. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Georgina Godwin here in London, and the Monocle Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. And I'll return to your airwaves first thing on The Globalist. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. <laughs>